for our fourth and final lesson of our tabletop Bible study. I welcome all of you that are watching and uh, you might be at home or maybe you're watching later on in, uh, in your own leisure. And for those that are in the sanctuary tonight, so glad that you're here. I just want to do a little recap of the lessons that we've been discovering. The first three lessons, we discovered and reviewed the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what the Bible says about salvation. The first three lessons, we were very careful just to use the scripture, and we had fill in the blanks. There are a few things we we did fill in just to keep us on track. Now, we're still on track, but if you'll notice tonight, there are no fill in the blanks, but you can still write. There's a lot of spaces and margins to write notes. There are a few things that everyone who professes Jesus Christ and calls themselves a believer needs to consider. First, we consider that we must be saved. First, we consider that there is a need for salvation. And so, how can we be saved? The Bible talks about that. So, it's salvation and then it's living. How do we live? So, salvation is the birth or the commencement of the believer's life. You become uh, a new creature in Christ Jesus. That is the new birth experience. And then, after that, how do we live? And that's, we, we, we would term that a godly living or a life of holiness, striving to be like the Lord. There's one other element, and that is the recognition of God. Who is God? In fact, Jesus will ask a question, who do men say that I am? And his disciples came back and said, well, some say that you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. Come back. Some say you're a teacher or just a rabbi. And then Jesus asked this question that all of us have to answer for our lives. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? This is an individual, not a corporate. This is an individual declaration of our belief, our thought of who God is. And so that's what we're discovering tonight. So if you attend this church or if you, if you hear me preaching from the pulpit and, and there are things that I might say during the course of a sermon, I want you to know where that's coming from as regards the Godhead or the understanding of God. And this lesson will give you that basis of understanding. Now, this lesson is, is one lesson of, this could be many, many lessons. There are many books on this. But I'm giving you uh, an overview, even though there is some depth in here. But I'm giving you an overview of this with one Bible lesson on the Godhead. So let's talk about this, this Godhead and who God is. In your handout, and I'll just start at the top there, we're on page 19 if you have a book uh, or if you have a handout, we're at the top. In our search to understand the Bible, it is important for us to seek an understanding of the Godhead. As we have learned, our redemption required the perfect blood of the Lamb to pay for our sins on Calvary. The Bible shows how God came in the form of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. He was resurrected on the third day. So let's just, let's just settle on a few biblical declaratives. Here's our first biblical declarative as it regards the Godhead. There is only one God. Here's your Bible. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. 14 verses later, the word was made flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you're looking on your handout, the W-O-R-D, capital W-O-R-D, that was God himself. And that particular word comes from the Greek uh, derivative, logos, which means the thought or the plan of God. So John 1 and 1 reads like this in our vernacular. In the beginning was the thought, the plan. The thought or the plan was with God and he was God. 
So in the beginning, God had a plan, a logos. What was the plan? It was to restore mankind. The lamb, the Bible says, was slain before the foundation of the world, which reveals that in the mind of God, this thought already existed. So this is what the Bible says, and, and I'll read it in, in these subsequent verses. But look at Peter, 1 Peter 1. How were you redeemed with? The precious blood of Christ. He was a lamb without blemish, without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So it was a thought, but it didn't materialize until after the birth of Jesus Christ, when Mary was a spouse to Joseph. Okay. God knew that mankind was going to be, uh, had a need to be redeemed, and this was God's plan. God became a kinsman redeemer. Now, a kinsman redeemer, I want to talk about a kinsman redeemer just for a moment. And it, a kinsman redeemer is not really a common term. Even in church circles, people do not understand the kinsman redeemer. But God needed to be a kinsman redeemer to redeem mankind. But how could he redeem mankind? God is a spirit. Even Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is a spirit. So let's, let's talk about a kinsman redeemer. In the Bible, there, there was a, 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 a man who moved away from his land. He had debt, and he moved away from his land. In fact, in his area of living, there was a famine, and there, were, there was an economic depression. So he took his two sons and his wife, and he moved to Moab, which was a heathen nation. And when he got there... His sons eventually started to grow up there and they married Moabite girls. Now this was not uh, an approved marriage. Of course, uh, uh, the Hebrew boys were never meant to marry outside of their faith. That was their life. They were supposed to marry Hebrew girls. So the Jewish boys would marry Jewish girls. Same thing, Hebrew Jewish. Okay. But he died and his two sons died, which made his wife a widow. Her name was Naomi. She had two daughter-in-laws, and one of the daughter-in-laws, her name was Orpah, no relation to Oprah, and the other one was named Ruth. In your Bible, there's a book called Ruth, and this is where their story is found. Well, well Naomi said, I've got to go back home. I have nothing left here. I have land, but it's in debt, and I, I, I'm poor. I'm indebted. What do I do? So... She kissed her daughters, Orpah left, she went back to her family, and Ruth said, oh no, I want to be with you. In fact, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you die, I'm going to die. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. So this young Moabite, both of them are widows, leave and go back to the land of promise. When they get back there, they are are joining with the other poor, low-status people And they follow along with the reapers and they gather grain that's left by the sides. They they live off of the corners of the field. And and, um, so those are very important. I could talk to you about corners, but we'll leave that for another day. During that time, there's a man named Boaz. He he looks at at Ruth and he uh, falls in love with her. We won't go through the whole scenario, but he wants to marry Ruth. And so he needs to, he needs to settle some issues. Now he is actually a a long distance relationship to Ruth. And so in biblical times, not only could he marry her, but he could also uh, retain her properties. Um, But we have some problems with the properties. And we have some problems with, with this widow. It, it, it's different than marrying a young girl that's never been married before. So in this particular venue, what happened was that, that Boaz uh, sought out her hand in marriage. But there's another man in a closer relationship to her husband uh, than Boaz. And so whoever is the closest relative can be the kinsman redeemer. That means he can marry that widow and he can redeem her and redeem all of the goods or properties that she has. And so 
Boaz goes to the, the government, the, the city council, you could say, the city government, and he goes up uh, to those men and he wants to make uh, an offer for Ruth. Now, in those days, the gates, as I've often preached, the gates were not like a gate where you just swing it open and you walk through. In fact, I've been in Israel many times and, and at one point we went through a large opening and, and there, was, there was little coves in this in this uh, <clears throat> gate area, and that's where people used to sit, and that's where the government would take place in the city. In fact, the gates is where the government did its business. They did its business in the gates. Gates indicated authority. So when you read, when Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, he was not talking about the defense of hell. He was talking about the authority of hell. So many people look at that and say, well, he's going to build his church and, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Well, what does that mean? That means the authority of hell, all the power of hell cannot prevail. The highest realm of the enemy cannot prevail against the church. That is where Boaz went to meet the elders. He went to meet them at the gates. And he wants the hand of Ruth in marriage, but he's not the closest kinsman redeemer. The bloodline is there, but there's someone in the middle. And so Boaz asked this other man if he wants to marry Ruth. Would you like to marry? Now, she's already been married before. You can have all this property, and you can have her, but you have to have them together. You can't just have the property, and you can't just have the relationship. You can't have just the debt and pay that off, and you can't just have the You have to have both. Well, the man looked at that situation and relinquished it he relinquished it he said no okay i won't be the kids redeemer i'll give her to you <laughs> i don't want to go down this road but this is a great it's a great thought even even in in the psalmist said i've i've cast my shoe over moab because when you were going to take authority and a transfer, they would take their shoe off and they would throw their shoe on the ground in front of them. And that signified that there was a transfer of authority. I'm taking authority over this situation. They cast their shoe. And Boaz took his shoe off in front of the elders at that gate that signified all the government authority. He cast his shoe before them and he became the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. He married Ruth. He had to be of the same bloodline as her deceased husband. To both have the relationship and to pay off all the debt that she would have had. This is the exact plan of God. It is another type of what God did for us. But God is a spirit. He had to have a body. He had to have blood of our making. He had to become a man to redeem us. And that is the story of Jesus Christ. God was a spirit, but he came as a man to redeem us. Amen. I, I wish I could just stop right there and have a good time with that. But we'll, we just wanted to establish that, there, that, that this is a critical point and that there is one God and we're going to talk about this one God. He had to have blood. So here's the next page, page 20. Sometimes in the Bible, the Bible will use references and, and the Bible will use metaphors. Sometimes the scriptures are literal Sometimes they're figurative. Sometimes the scriptures are showing examples. Sometimes the Bible uses human body parts to relate a function of God. Uh, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. That's 2 Chronicles 16. Well, do those, legs have, do those eyes have legs? No. What does that mean? It, uh, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Does God have an actual arm? No, this is called anthropomorphisms, which is a large word, and if you spell it in, in um, Scrabble, you, you win the game just flat out, if you can get all those and put it together. Of course, I don't think you can have that many letters, but, but if you can ever get there, you, you won. This is... Uh, this is an example, and I have it on your page. The right hand of God actually refers to a position of power. So whenever you see the right hand of God, we're not talking about a literal place. We're talking about a position of power. Um, God could not be the Savior he claimed to be without a human body. He had to have the same bloodline as his creation. He was a spirit, but he had to be a man. So 
you need to know this literal and figurative speech because if you don't, then you might think something's literal when, and when, when in reality it's a figure of speech or a figurative speaking. Okay, so we're just laying all this good groundwork because this is foundational to understanding who is God. Now there's a lot of different ideas and, and in fact, as I've been studying recently, I found out that there's a lot more thoughts about or philosophies about God. But these are the large, big-ticket items uh, that people tend to gravitate to. There are atheists. They deny the existence of God. There is no God. That's atheism. Now, secularism uh, adopts atheistic beliefs, most of all. But they also adopt another belief, and that's called agnostic. Uh, The agnostic, they're not going to deny that there's a God. They just... They're not sure if God exists, if he doesn't exist. They're not sure. They're not sure, if, they're not sure if, if he's alive or not, or if he's there or not. They can't prove him or disprove God. I have a good joke that goes along with this. I will pass up the joke tonight for the sake of all the people, but if you, if you offer me a nominal fee, I'll tell you my good joke later. Okay. Then you've got pantheist. Um, pantheist love nature, and they think that God is nature, or that nature is God, either or. So the trees, and the shrubs, and and the sky, and the moon, but pantheism has been around a long time, moon god. Egypt was was filled with pantheism. Then there's polytheism, or a polytheist. They believe in many gods. Hinduism is prone to polytheistic beliefs. Uh, Ditheism believes in two gods, Tritheism believes in three gods, and monotheism believes in only one god. Now, the monotheistic view is the view that I preach, that I believe. And if you're coming to this church or you're hearing this online, just know that every time that I'm preaching and when I mention God, I am coming from the foundation of a monotheistic belief. Now, I don't know what your belief is. I'm not exactly sure how you consider God or see him, but I just want you to know that from my vantage point, I, I preach a monotheistic God, which is the only, that there's only one God. And this is, the, this is the view that the Jewish people espouse to all of their life. In fact, they called a specific scripture the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the basis, the foundation of all their beliefs. In fact, everything that the Jewish man, that the that the Israelites would ever believe was rooted and based on this idea, and they called it the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In fact, if you're in Jerusalem, if you go to visit, you'll note that Deuteronomy 6.4 is written. Sometimes they'll write it on leather, on calfskin, on different parchments. They'll roll it up. They'll, they'll put it in their pockets. They'll, they'll put it in phylacteries and put it on their heads. Um, they'll, they'll hang it. They'll, they'll, they'll embrace it. The Shema is their daily prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, the Old Testament and the New Testament both espouse this monotheistic view. And I want to share with you why I believe that there's only one God. Now, God spoke of himself as the one and only God. The Ten Commandments reveal as much. He said that there should be no other gods before me. In fact, he even talked about no graven images. So any organization, church body, belief, it doesn't matter, that puts up a graven image of a god, uh, the Lord has spoke against that because he did not want a likeness. Um, there, there were gods, the Philistines had gods um, they would make a golden mouse, uh, mice. Um, the, the Egyptians had, had uh, 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 cats and, and different statues. You can see that in their literature, the many, many gods of Egypt and, of course, throughout the known world. But the Hebrew people were instructed, and this came through their prophets. I'm not giving you every scripture in the Old Testament where God declares himself as being the only God, that there is no other God. However, we'll go through a few of these. Isaiah 43, 10, 11. This is what God said. Before me, there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord. 
Beside me there is no what? Savior. Everyone say Savior. This is critical. He's the only Savior. The God of the Old Testament is the only Savior. If I had a marker, a highlighter, a pen, I'd be underlining no other Savior. Isaiah 44 and 6. God said, I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. Now the first and the last is important for you to remember. This is what God said of himself in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44 and 8. Is there a God beside me? He said, I don't know any. Isaiah 44, 24. I am the Lord that maketh all things. I stretch forth the heavens alone, spreads out the earth by myself. Here's the next verse at the top of your page. Isaiah 45, verses 21 and 22. There is no God beside me. A just God and a, there it is again, a savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Isaiah 37, 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwelleth between the cherubims. Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, and thou hast made heaven and earth. Here's Malachi 2.10. There is only one God who is the creator. Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 14 and 9. In the time of the millennial reign, that's a prophetic word, there shall be only one Lord with one name. We are facing the millennial reign. It's, it's in front of us. We're coming up on it, I believe, very soon. And then Psalm 71, 22 states that the Lord is the Holy One. These are singular terms. This is the Shema, the view of the Jews in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament wasn't alone. The New Testament declares a monotheistic doctrine or a monotheistic view also. Romans chapter 3, verse 30, Paul wrote, Seeing it is one God which shall justify. To the church at Corinth, he said, There is no other God but one. But to us there is but one God. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God. James even wrote, Thou believest that there is one God? You're doing pretty good. You're doing well. But the devils, they believe that. And they don't just believe it, but when they believe it, they tremble at the thought of this monotheistic one God. 1 John 2.20 calls God the Holy One and Revelation 4.2 states that there is one throne in heaven and one who sits on the throne. One. So this is my platform for my view of who is God. There is one God. I only know one God. Now how did God come? He had to come as a man. He had to robe himself in flesh to redeem me, to die for my sins. He had to become that lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So now I'm going to see him in the image of Jesus Christ. Here's the dual nature. We're going to get into the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin and overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 18. I'm going to read this to you. There's actually three verses in a row. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, God was in Christ. This is the perfect scripture to declare the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Here are the disciples in John 14. They've been with Jesus a long time now. Philip goes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and I'll use it in our terms, we'll be satisfied. We'll be appeased. It'll be good with us. We'll have understanding. And Jesus said to Philip, Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet you don't know me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Why are you saying, show us the Father? When you see me, you see the Father. Jesus is the express image of the Father. He is the, he is the human body, the form, wherein the Spirit, the Father, dwelt. 
So Jesus revealed to Philip the revelation of who he was. This language, of course, infuriated the Pharisees as Jesus continued to identify himself as God. He was saying, I'm God. In fact, he said to the, to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Well, that made them very angry because they understood. In fact, they understood that scripture a lot better than a lot of people today understand, understand the scripture. Jesus was saying, you're looking at me in this bodily form, but the spirit inside of me, who I am, inside of this flesh, is eternal. I existed before Abraham existed. And that made them terribly angry because that meant that he was the Messiah. Colossians 1.15, who, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I, I, could, I could take my board here and I could, I could try to depict God, but there's no way to depict him. He's, he's invisible. I'll just do like a cloud, a spirit, a cloud. You can't really, you, 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 you can't really put anything on that. It's a spirit. It's a spirit. Even Jesus said, Flesh and blood, a spirit does not have flesh and blood as ye see me have. Here's 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. God is a spirit. No one can see him. How did they see him? They saw him through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the express image of God. Okay. This is the dual nature of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give a healthy list of that in our next page. But let's just look at this last part, this revealing truth. It's a powerful truth that was spoken by Paul concerning the one God, Jesus as God. Paul revealed the mystery to Timothy how God, Yahweh, Jehovah, that eternal spirit became Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul wrote. And without controversy, great is the mystery of God or we can even say godliness, but this is, this is the reference here. God was manifest in the flesh. Now let's read it as Paul intended. God was manifest in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world. And he was received up into glory. God. How was he? Through this man... We know as Christ Jesus. All right. Let's do the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Just for emphasis, we'll go to page 23. And we'll talk about this fully God and fully man. Both man and God. Now, I just want everyone to know, just, just for your understanding, the Godhead can be very complex. It can be a complex conversation. In fact, some people don't want to learn about it because it can scramble your brain a little bit. It, it's, we, we like terms that, that make us feel good. And, and so we, we actually we even create concepts that are not biblical just so we have a better time explaining them. But if you start looking at the scripture, you'll realize that this, uh, this particular uh, scripture uh, and, and, and these verses that I'm delivering to you tonight give revelation as to who God is and the manifestation of God. Jesus was both fully God and he was fully man. He had, he, he embodied this, maybe I could call it this marriage of spirit and flesh, of, of eternity and temporal. So here we are. He was born as a baby, Luke 2 and 7, yet he existed from eternity, Micah 5 to John 1, 1 through 2. Now I'm giving you the references because we probably wouldn't have time to look up all the scriptures. But I urge you, when you, if you're at home or if you're watching this, pause it and look at this scripture and you'll, you'll notice that in the right-hand column, this is, the, this is the expression of the eternal spirit, fully God, in the left-hand column is fully man. He grew mentally, spiritually, and socially. Physically, however, he never changed. He, Hebrews 13, 8 Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was tempted by the devil. But in Matthew 28, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, he cast out devils. He was hungry in Matthew 4, 2. But he was the bread of life in John 6, 25. On his mama's side, he thirsted. But in the spirit side, he gave living water. 
in his natural human side, he grew weary because that's what the human body does. But in the spirit, he gave rest, Matthew 11. He slept in a storm because when you're tired, you go to sleep. But he also calmed storms in that same story. He prayed in Luke 22, and he answered prayers in John 14, 14. He was beaten and scourged in John 19, but he healed the sick in Matthew 8 and, and 1 Peter 2. He died, Mark 15, 37. But can God die? No. He raised his own body from the dead, John 2, 20. He was sacrificed for sin in Hebrews 10. He forgave sin in Mark 2. He did not know all things. Uh-oh. How could that be? Because in the natural side, he was fully man. So in his fully man state, he did not know all things. And he confessed it in Mark 13, 3. I don't know all things. But in John 21, in the spirit, he knew all things. The dual nature of Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man. He had no power in John 5, 30. Yet he had all power in, in Matthew 28 and Colossians 2. He was inferior to God. Where? How? The flesh. In his body, he was inferior. But in his spirit, he was God in John 5, 18. He was a servant in Philippians 2, 7 through 8. Yet he was the king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 19, 16. There is no God like him. Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Or, or maybe even better stated, God is one of us. He has become flesh. He was born of flesh, making fully man. He was the eternal sp spirit, made him fully God. He was the eternal spirit in fleshly form, God with us. Amen. Now I get to draw for you. I have given you on your page this uh, temple. It's a, it's a real fancy drawing of a temple. And um, so I want to talk to you about that temple. David had a dream. God did not ask him to build a temple. In fact, God even said, I've never asked you to build a temple. It was not God's original intention. It was a permissive uh, thing that God allowed Solomon to build a temple. Solomon came after David. David wanted to build a temple. David had fought a lot of wars. He had a lot of blood on his hands. He was a man of war. So God allowed his son Solomon to build the temple because that was the desire of David's heart. God acquiesced. He said, okay, this is where I'll put my name and here's where you'll make a sacrifice. Solomon built the temple and that was a magnificent temple. In fact, the Bible says there was not a sound of a hammer when they constructed the temple. They cut all of the cedars from Lebanon off-site. They, the architects were so profound, they made all the stones off-site. When they brought it together, it was a peaceful, organized union of this glorious temple. There was no ruckus, there was no yelling, there was no clanging, there were no hammerings. When God's temple, you ought to think of this imagery, when God puts the temple together, it comes together with peace. He did not want the temple, neither you or me, to live in chaos. Chaos is a sign of a man's work. Peace is the hand of God. When they built the temple, it took them seven years to build the temple of Solomon. And it was so magnificent and glorious. There were two massive columns on the top of those columns in the courtyard. Two massive columns on the top of those columns. There was massive barrels of oil that they would light. They were like flashlights. They were, not flash, they were, like, they were like beams of light that shot up into the sky. It was incredible. You could see them for miles around. Those massive beams, they were 18 feet in diameter. Um, I'm sorry, 18 feet in radius, 36 feet in diameter. They were, they were incredible columns. They were outside. The temple was overlaid with gold inside and out. All the acacia wood was crafted by skilled men overlaid with gold. Some of the gold was molten and some of it was beaten. There's significance in that, but... Once again, we don't have time, so we'll just, we'll go on. Solomon built this phenomenal temple, and even all of the attendants and the priests, they were arrayed in beautiful garments. In fact, they came from the tabernacle of Moses and brought this into this massive, gorgeous temple. 
And when they were to dedicate the temple and they sacrificed thousands of animals that day, the glory of God came inside that temple. It, 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 was, it was the glory of God that came in that temple. And Solomon looked up at that temple and he realized that this temple could not hold all of God. That God was inside of the temple and he was outside the temple. He was not contained in a single place. That he was inside and he was outside. And Solomon, here's Solomon. Want me to draw Solomon? There he is. Here's the king. I'll put some in a royal robe with his shoes on. Solomon, he looks up into heaven and he realizes this. And here is a revelation of God. He says, but will God, on your page, 1 Kings 8.27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens. Everyone say the heaven cannot contain thee. Say it, the heavens cannot contain thee. The heavens can't contain God. The heavens aren't big enough to contain all of God. You can take all the galaxies and multiply them by an infinity. They're not large enough to contain all of God. Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this temple that I built? Because God's inside the temple and he's outside the temple. Are you getting that? He's inside the temple and he's outside the temple. Here is Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, a man. The, the God of heaven and earth is inside of the flesh, of the body, and he's outside of the body. So when you hear this voice come from heaven, while Jesus being baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that is the same spirit that's inside of the body, now speaking from outside of the body. Okay, so the questions are here. Now, before I get into the questions, I just want everyone to know, this is my personal thought. If you share this thought, I, I praise God. If you don't, I want you to know where I'm coming from. I want you to know the platform that I'm standing on. I'm standing on a monotheistic platform that Jesus is the incarnate God, that Jesus is the only God that you will ever see when you get to heaven. That there's only one throne, the Bible says there's only one sitting on the throne. That when we hear about Jesus sitting down the right hand of the Father, that we know that that's an anthropomorphism. That's a figurative speech about the authority that the Spirit gave the flesh. We could even say it this way, that the Father gave the Son. But there are not two different individuals. This is not an individual or collaborative effort. There is one God, one spirit. So this is what the Bible supports. And here it is. Paul wrote that there is only one Lord. There's only one faith. And there's only one baptism. This is very interesting. Because I think there's many different views on baptism. Well, if there's only one baptism, according to Ephesians 4 and 5, I want to find out what that baptism is. If there's only one Lord, I need to know who that Lord is. And as we have discovered, both Old and New Testaments are emphatic that Jesus is the incarnate God, this monotheistic, this only one God. However, there are questions concerning the God and who Jesus is. So before we turn the page, let me just say this. These are pertinent questions. We're going to declare, I'm going to declare my view of the Godhead according to the Bible, and here's what I declare. We believe that the mighty God was in Christ. He was reconciling the world to himself. That God was manifested in Jesus to become the kinsman redeemer because a spirit doesn't have blood or flesh. And God had a thought and a plan at the beginning. Man was going to sin. I'm going to have to come, and I'm going to have to die for the people, but I have to have a body. God only has one name. His name is Jesus. When you see those hyphenated names, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, my provider, my peace, Jehovah Sid Canoe. When you see those, the Lord is my banner. Those are titles of God. They did not know the name of God. 
even Jacob, when he wrestled with the theophany, a theophany is a, is a, is a kind of a physical manifestation of God for a period of time, like the burning bush. And he said, what is thy name? And what did the Lord say back to him? How is it that you're a- after my name? He never gave him an answer. Why? Because in Matthew one twenty one, the angel Gabriel, which is the messenger archangel, came to deliver the name. Angel, the angel said, Gabriel said to, to both Joseph and to Mary, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God only has one name. There is only one I am. Now this is by definition. When I was young, I had uh, uh, Bible studies. I used to teach Bible studies in my teenage years through all of my friends. And, and I, had, uh, I had some Mormon friends. I had Jehovah's Witness friends. I had multi-different denominational friends. And we, I would teach Bible studies. What, some of my friends were, were uh, Jehovah's Witness. And we had a discussion about this. And we talked about the mighty God. And they said, yes, Jesus is the mighty God, but he's not the almighty God. The almighty God means the one and only. But of course, they didn't know some of the scriptures and I started to relate to them that in fact, the Bible does declare him as the almighty God. They also struggled a little bit with this I am, the one I am, because the I am that I am indicates singularity, that he's not a plural and he doesn't have even divisions. It's just one I am. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are manifestations of this one God. This is how we teach here that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are manifestations of just one God. Now, if you divide Father, Son, and Holy Ghost according to what the original uh, Catholic fathers in, in the early hundreds, maybe two, three hundreds, when they started to create the Nicene Creed, they created a creed that declared three different persons and three different thoughts with separate wills, separate understandings, separate powers to make up what they called a triune God. But I do not believe that that is found in the Bible. In fact, you'll never even read the word Trinity in the Bible. Now, when I show this to my Trinitarian friends, we discuss it. And sometimes some of my friends and and even ministers say, well, you know, Reverend, it might just be semantics. And I would grant them, okay, maybe it's just semantics or the way we're, we're using it. However, when it comes to some of these Catholic derivatives, I, I refute them because I know what they mean. You see, not everyone understands what they mean. But when you start to go back and look into history, you'll find out that it wasn't just semantics. They wrote, the original was not even God the Father, God the Son or God the Holy Ghost. It was God the Father, the Queen of Heaven, and God the Son. It was not the Holy Ghost. In fact, in the original, they they did not include God the Holy Ghost. It was God the Father, the Queen of Heaven, and God the Son. This was the original concept of the Trinity. And then after some argumentations and multiple council meetings, they switched it and removed Mary. But she was still included as the queen of heaven. Now, the Bible does not call her the queen of heaven. She is blessed among all women. Her name would be blessed. There were songs written about her. She was a phenomenal servant of the Lord God. And we give her respect and honor for her faith. But we also do that for all of the saints of God, no matter what their position is. Yes, she was unique. She's not the queen of heaven. And there is no reference in the Bible to God the Holy Ghost or God the Holy Spirit. Nor will you ever find God the Son in the Bible. You'll find Son of God, but not God the Son. And there's a reason for that. So in the original, it was three men with co-equal abilities. That was the Trinity. It was three men with co-equal abilities. It was the Father, the Son, and of course they changed it into the Holy Ghost. And they were co-equal in all areas, in will, in power, in understanding. They worked together, the Trinity said, but they were three individuals. Unfortunately, the problem with that is that this was the begotten son. Begotten. Begotten means to come after. 
when the Trinity came about, they, they couldn't manage that because they needed them to always exist, co-eternal. They needed them to be co-eternal. So they couldn't manage that theory because begotten means to come after. So Dell begot William. William begat Jeffrey. Jeffrey begat Roman, Reagan, I, I, we lost our mind, Alexandra, and then Nicholas. So this is coming after. Begotten means to come after. It doesn't mean to originate at the, at, at the beginning. So to manage those words, they use eternally begotten, which is an oxymoron. Does not make sense. They are opposed to one another. Everybody was still with me? So this was a, this was a creation not found in the Bible, not found in the original canon, and could not be exegeted by any of the scriptures. So this was the original thought. And God the Father was supposed to represent an older God. God the Son was supposed to represent a younger God. And God the Holy Spirit, they could not depict God the Holy Spirit or God the Holy Ghost. Still cannot. So... This is my question for my Trinitarian friends and those people who are, might want to know how I would arrive at this, this oneness. Because my view is that of one. And we can even call that oneness. It only depicts that there is one God. And all I'm trying to say is he's a monotheistic God. With manifestations. Manifested as the Father. Manifest of the Son, manifested in these days as the Spirit. I have the Spirit of God inside of me. And I talked about the Spirit last week. When I say the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. The Bible says there is only one Spirit. I'm talking about one Spirit. Not two or three or four. I'm talking about the only Spirit. Okay. So, these are a few questions that support this one God thought message and I refute the, the claim of three distinct or separate persons or gods in this Godhead form. We know, here's the first question, we know that Mary was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Are you ready for this? Watch that board. Found with child of the Holy Ghost. If Jesus was found with child of the Holy Ghost, if here's Jesus, the Son of God, if he's found with child of the Holy Ghost, and if there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, it would mean that the Father was not the Father, the Son, but the Holy Ghost was the Father. If he's the Father, if Mary conceived and had a baby through the Holy Ghost, that means the Holy Ghost is the Father and not the Father. If there are three distinct persons, this does not work out very well. Here's my answer. The oneness view is that the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God or God himself. It is not a separate person, but a manifestation of God. It's God. When we speak of the Father, we're talking about the eternal spirit. So when you hear me pray, Father, we need you, that I could as easily say, Spirit, we need you. When I say, Father, please come. Lord, you know we've got to have you here. I am calling on the Holy Spirit because there's only one spirit. So when we talk about the Son, we're talking about the incarnation of spirit in bodily form. All right, that's my first question that we can answer as people who believe in a monotheistic view. Here's the next question. How many spirits are there? God the Father is a spirit in John 4, 24. The Lord Jesus is a spirit in 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is that spirit where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And the Holy Spirit is a spirit by definition. They're not separate. They're not distinct. They're not co-anything. There's just one we know that there's only one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. The scripture clearly teaches that there is only one spirit, just a Solomon of the temple. The spirit was both inside and outside the temple. Jesus was both fully God and fully man, and the spirit was still omnipresent. That's the answer. N number three, I, and I added this, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, nor are there any description of three distinct persons represented in the Bible. If this concept, Trinity, is actually a description of God, why is there no word or translation for such a scripture? Here's my answer for that. Because God was manifested in different ways. The concept of the Trinity was created around the 4th century in the 300s. Prior to that time, it was not yet developed. The message of one God, however, one God in Christ, was 
and is the Bible's view of the Godhead. I'll just keep on going. Question number four. If the meaning almighty dictates only one or one almighty, A-L-L, mighty, then how can two persons lay claim to the term? Remember that dual nature of Jesus Christ. And remember how that, how that God said in the Old Testament, he's the first and the last. God, the Father, said in the Old Testament that he was the Almighty, Genesis 17, 1. And Jesus said in Revelation 1, 8, the same thing. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which was, which is, which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus called himself the Almighty in Revelation 1 and 8. Jehovah the description of, of God said the same thing in Genesis 17 and 1. Two persons cannot lay claim to Almighty. Only one. So that's how we know that Jesus is the manifestation of the God of the Old Testament. There are not two persons. There's one person in the Godhead. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is Jehovah come in the flesh. Number five. Question five. If the Father and the Son are co-equal persons, if that's true, why did Jesus pray to the Father? Some folks tell me, well, well, wait a second, wait a second. Jesus prayed to the Father. I got it. The Son prayed to the Father. And I've asked people to, to talk to me about that. And, and in, in years past, and we, we don't have as many, but, but, but I love this beautiful Bible someone showed me. It had some pictures in it. And Jesus was praying in the garden. And it's the Garden of Gethsemane, I think. And he's praying and there's a light, like a, a beautiful ray of, of, of light coming down on his face. He's praying, there's a rock there, he has his hands posed. It's an amazing print, I don't know who drew that. He's got a real straight nose, he looks like an Irishman. I think someone by the name of O'Malley was posing for that picture. It doesn't look like a Jewish man at all. He's a real fair skin. You ever seen those pictures on the walls of, of, of homes? You know, the painting of Jesus with blue eyes, straight nose, tall, six foot two. Looks like a guy right out of GQ magazine, just a model of. This was not the picture of Jesus. We really don't know how tall he is, but he was a Jewish man. In fact, Isaiah said there's no comeliness. He's probably much darker skinned. Um, he didn't have light skin. He was, he was outside most of his life. He was probably a short Jewish man. There was no beauty that you should recognize him. He didn't just recognize him. He didn't stand out in a crowd. He blended in with the crowd. That's the trouble. He blended in and they couldn't find him. <clears throat> and this light is coming down and Jesus is praying. And there's this older man with a big beard kind of, kind of leaning forward out of the clouds. And Jesus in this picture is praying to this much younger man is praying to this old man in the picture in this biblical narrative. So here's question five. If they're co-equal persons, why would the son pray to the father? Can God pray to God? Here's the answer. We know that it was the flesh that was calling out to the spirit. That picture has no relevancy there's no indication that Jesus was ever looking up, but he could have because, but there's no indication that he was, but it was the flesh crying out to the spirit. It was the groaning of the flesh, knowing the pain of the flesh in his fully man, fully humanity. He was calling out to the spirit. It was an internal conflict inside of him. It was the knowledge that what was coming, knowing what pain and suffering was in the flesh and the spirit it was the flesh and the spirit, and the flesh was praying to the spirit. It was not God praying to God. If the Son had to pray to the Father, it would nullify co-equal, co-eternal, co-power. They could never be co-equal if one had to pray to another. Never. A God does not need to pray to another God. So we know that Jesus and his flesh was calling out or praying to the eternal spirit. I'll give you three more questions and we'll answer all of them at the end. Also, how can the son not know as much as the father if they are co-equal? This is what the Bible says. He didn't know as much as the father. And similarly, how can the son not have power except what the father gives him? What is he talking about? 
And yet again, what about other verses of Scripture indicating the inequality of the Son and the Father? If they're co-equal, co-eternal, co-omniscient, according to this Nicene Creed, which is really the strict Trinitarian doctrine. Why does the Bible tell us otherwise? John 8 and John 14, 1 Corinthians 11. Here's, here's my answer to all of those. Because I'm building and I'm standing on a monotheistic idea. I'm, I'm standing on the Shema. Here is the Lord our God is one Lord. That Jesus is the express image of the eternal spirit. That he is the only person that I will ever see. Here is, here is the revealed answer. That in his flesh is humanity. Jesus is limited. But in his spirit, he is the ancient of days. Jesus said it. He is the ancient of days. I've always been. I was before time. I was. I am. I shall be. And I'm the almighty. This is the answer to all of those. That when he said, I don't know. I don't have the power. That's in his humanity. But he had the power in his spirit, the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Question 9 and 10. If Jesus is God the Son, why isn't he ever called God the Son in the, in the Bible? Now, of course, since I wrote this many, many years ago, there's been new translations of the Bible where they have now inserted these words, God the Son. But in the original text, you'll never, ever find God the Son. You could find Son of God. Now, why would that make a difference? Because God the Son had to be placed there in new translations or ideas to support this three-person concept. When it really, the reality is that the Son of God simply means that he, was, he, had, a be, he had a beginning point, that Jesus had a beginning, the flesh had a beginning, he was not eternally begotten. Did, did God the Son die? If there was a separate person, did God the Son die? The Bible says that the Son died in Romans 5.10. If so, can God die? Or can a part of God die? The answer is no. Once again, this proves that the body of Jesus could die, but the Spirit was eternal and that there is only one Spirit. This Emmanuel, God with us, is in bodily form. So when you read the Bible, you'll even see it. When he died, he did what? He gave up the ghost. There's a separation from the humanity and the Spirit. The flesh and the spirit. And the spirit departs the flesh. The spirit does. So my answer to that is God cannot die. A part of God cannot die. But the flesh could die and the flesh did die. So then there's a departure of spirit and body. Number 11. How can there be an eternal son when the Bible speaks of him as the begotten son? We've answered this which clearly indicates that the son had a beginning. John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the Spirit, so loved the world that he gave his only what? Begotten Son. Not eternally begotten, his only begotten Son. God gave his only begotten Son. There's an old country song, uh, uh, religious country song, and God looked down in this song, and country, country lyrics are the best. Country music has the best lyrics. Did you all know that? And the reason why is because they only have three chords all their song, songs only have three chords, so they make up for it with better lyrics. Um, rock and roll and, 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 and pop 40, they have all the chords. They use the whole keyboard, all the range, and they just say, ooh, baby, baby, and, and that's all they've got. They've got really great music and no lyrics, but country western music and country songs, even southern gospel, they, they've got all of that good lyrics because they, they only use three chords. So... This country song is, God is looking at the humanity. He's seen all the sin. He's very sad. And he looks out of all the angels and all the creation. The country writer says, who will go die for the people? Nobody raised their hands, but a little boy in the back row comes forward and says, I'll die for them, daddy. And then that's the view of this dual nature. Really, it's ditheism. It's not even really tritheism. Really, when you break it down, it's just father and son. The Holy Ghost is really removed that concept is only added in later to fill in a blank that they needed. And I'm not talking about modern people. I'm talking about in the fourth century, they needed that third image, which wasn't even really enacted upon. So if, you're, if, if you espouse in that Trinitarian concept, who do you pray to? If there are three persons, who do you pray to? Do you pray to God the Spirit? Do you pray to God the Son? Do you pray to God the Father? One man told me a few years ago, he said, you know, 
we've been praying and we don't really know what to do. He was a pastor of a church. And he said, we've been praying, we're not really sure how to do this. And I said, well, tell me, what are you talking about? He said, well, maybe you can help me. He said, we spend 15 minutes praying to God the Father. We spend 15 minutes praying to God the Son. And we spend 15 minutes praying to God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. He said, what do you think? And I said, well, really, they're just one. It's not a three, it's just one. You can spend 15 minutes and get done with your prayer a lot sooner. Just pray to God. (laughs) Then he made the case that people needed to pray longer, so he was really comfortable leaving it there it was, where it was. I said, well, that's okay, but just know. So who do you pray to? Do you pray to, to Jesus? Does he go and tell the Father? Do you pray the Holy Ghost? How is, what's the pecking order? I would just say, and not in a humorous way, Jesus is not Jehovah Junior. Jesus is not the offshoot of the originator. He is God. Jesus is God. And so when you get to heaven, Jesus is going to have a glorified body, and from him are all the attributes of all eternity. So how can there be an eternal son when the Bible speaks of him as the only begotten son. I, I will tell you, I, didn't, I want my God to die for me. My God died for me. My God did not look around and send another God to die for me. My God died for me. My God robed himself in flesh, took on the form of a man. My God felt all of my pain, my temptations, my burdens. My God walked this earth. My God, he couldn't do it until he became a kinsman redeemer. He couldn't do it without a body. He had to have a body. And that's why he overshadowed Mary. He overshadowed Mary. He was invested and he invested himself in this man called Christ Jesus. This is my God. So, we know that the son was made of a woman, Galatians 4.4. Begotten means to come after or procreate. The only begotten son means that God came in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. The son was not in heaven or eternal. The son had a beginning. I would never espouse any other concept, not a polytheistic concept, not a, not a tritheistic or a ditheistic concept, but only a monotheistic concept because that's the only concept that the Bible supports. Okay. And question number 12. Our final question. If there are three instead of one, who do you bring your prayers to? If there are three distinct persons. This is critical that you, that you understand the distinction of this Godhead breakdown. The doctrine of the Trinity is true. Then where are those? And here's the answer to that. Jesus said to worship the Father in John 4, 21 and 24. Yet Stephen prayed to Jesus in Acts 7. The Bible teaches us that the Son and the Father are one. John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Think of this. Think of this. Even in the revelation of the apostles, they were getting what I'm saying now. That's why they wrote it this way. I'll just, I'll catch you away for a moment. Saul is breathing out threatenings and slaughter against against the Jews. He's on his way to Damascus. Saul is a Pharisee. He said, I'm a Pharisee. He got permission to kill more Christians or imprison them. And the Bible says, on his way to Damascus, a light shines from heaven. He falls to the ground. He looks up, the Pharisee looks up and he says, Who art thou, Lord? Capital L. Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou? What is Lord? Yahweh. Who are you, Yahweh? Who are you, Jehovah? Who are you, Lord? Because the Jews, the Pharisees, knew God as Yahweh. Who are you? And a voice, the Bible says, came from heaven and said, I am Jesus. It's hard for you. To fight against me, I am Jesus. The revelation of the mighty God in Christ came right then. Paul was converted, and his conversion began with the understanding of who Jesus was. Jesus was Yahweh. Who are you, capital L-O-R-D? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Jesus said, I am my Father, are one. We pray to Jesus, who is God. He is the everlasting Father according to, Isaiah, according to Isaiah 9 and 6. Jesus is the everlasting Father. He is the Son according to John 3 16. He is the Holy Ghost according to John 14 and 18. When I say Jesus, I said it all. 
I said everything that could ever be said. I'm reaching back before time. I'm calling on the great I am that I am. When I say Jesus, I'm saying everything in the future. When I say Jesus, I am calling the name. The Bible says that the whole family of heaven and earth is named after that name, Jesus. That is the platform that I stand on. It is what I term and what many probably term the oneness of the Godhead or a monotheistic view of who God is. His name is Jesus. He's living inside of us. Wherever you are, I just want you to bow your heads in prayer right now. And we're just going to pray that God would help us because I know that, that, that there could be a lot of thoughts and a lot of ideas, but we want God to show us this. Like, like God showed Paul on the road to Damascus. And I pray it right now. Lord, I pray... Reveal yourself, Lord, to people. I, I can only use the scripture, but this has got to be by divine revelation. This has got to be by divine revelation, like you said to Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. The revelation of who you are, Lord. Reveal this to people, I pray. Not only so that we would know who you are, but also in baptism we would call on your name. Because there's only one name. There's only one name whereby we must be saved, according to the books of Acts. So I pray right now, help us, Lord. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for your blessing. And you are a great God and a great Savior. We call upon you, Lord. We call upon you, Lord. I pray these prayers in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And all the people said amen. Amen. God love you. I hope that you'll go back and review all of these four lessons on Tabletop Bible Study.